Welcome everybody, I'm Richard Krauss. I hope you're staying safe and staying healthy. We have a jam-packed show for you today. Later, Arlene Dickinson of Dragon's Den will stop by to talk about the very practical advice in her new book, Changing Your Life, Your Career, Your Future. It's counterintuitive. You have to look back in order to move forward. You have mm -hmm. to think about what your past was. We'll also get to know Sir Ben Kingsley, the Oscar-winning actor will stop by to talk about being a storyteller on the big screen. I'm sure I'm a storyteller. Um, I'm sure that's the right place for my DNA to be. And if it means that through storytelling something has been shifted, healed, touched in her, great, good. Speaking of storytellers, our first guest today is among the best in the country. Ian Williams is the author of books of poetry like Personals, Not Anyone's Anything, You Know Who You Are, and he was a finalist for the Relit Prize for Poetry. He was also named one of 10 Canadian Writers to Watch by the CBC, and his latest book is a novel called Reproduction, a love story about the way families are formed. That novel, which explores unconventional connections and brilliantly redefines family, made him only the second writer with Trinidadian roots to win the coveted Giller Prize, the biggest prize in Canadian literature. Let's get started with Ian Williams. Each of your books is very personal. Mm. Each of the books of poetry, which I just mentioned in the new book even, mm. uh, but you say that you know who you are is about coming to terms with your identity as a black man. Mm. Not anyone's anything uh, said, you said, was about letting go of the adolescent self-delusion that you are special. <laughs> and then personals, uh, you're exploring the search for external connection. Mm. And, you know, all those books were books of poetry. Is it easier to explore mm. those ideas in a kind of abstract way mm. through poetry than it is through prose? Mm. And we'll get to reproduction soon. We'll get to your new novel soon. Sure. But is, is it different? It, well, it is different. Actually, I go back and forth between poetry and prose, mm -hmm. right? So this is the first novel, but the middle collection, there was uh, a collection of short stories. Right. So I feel really comfortable in both genres, you know, to swing back and forth. Um, yeah, they say that, you know, one can't be good at, like, multi a poet, you know, is a pure poet and can't be good at uh, another genre. But I actually just feel, I describe it as being bilingual, right? Like, I feel comfortable in poetry <laughs> and I speak prose as well. Yeah. And I swing back and forth between projects. Uh, this is different. The novel's different because of the scale of it, right? Mm -hmm. It's the, going from making a short film to making, like, a feature film. Uh, and so there are things to learn just craft-wise in terms of writing a first novel. And it took a long time for that reason. It took six years. It took six years. Yeah. That's a big chunk of life. When you it look is. back over a career and think, you know, I've worked on this one thing for six years. I'm not sure in many professions that you can say that I've been building this thing for, for six years. Maybe your own company or something. Your own company or if you're, we had a drug designer in here a while huh. ago. And he told me about spending years working on, you know, creating a new drug he's trying to find, uh, he's working in uh, dementia, and he's mm -hmm. trying to find dementia drugs, and they take years to work on. That's right. But, but I asked him, and I'll ask you the same question, mm. where does the passion come from to stay with one story or one kind of idea? And there's many ideas in the book, but, mm -hmm. you know, the book is one idea, essentially, right. for six years. Yeah, there are many temptations along the way to sort of abandon the project or discard it <laughs> or what have you, right? It's a long, long and difficult uh, slog through. Uh, but you know, the real pleasure and the joy if it comes in like the dailiness of the work. Mm -hmm. So I don't 
always think about the end of the book or the old and the the goal is not oh what's random has going to say right yeah, yeah, yeah. you know the it's the daily kind of sitting down one paragraph at a time is this the right word in this sentence you know uh, am i really getting at the the heart of this character in this moment in this scene and the pleasure of just returning to the desk day after day you know um that's kind of what i tr- hope to teach students yeah. <laughs> you know this pleasure of returning like they're very interested in publishing and you know getting their work out into the world and that's just a piece of the whole life right the sharing of it it, it, it is you know and and there's a great movie called patterson about a poet I've heard I, i love this movie Adam Driver plays a poet who will not share his work with anyone. Right. And he's a he, bus driver, he's right? He's a bus driver in yeah. Patterson, New Jersey. Right. And his name, I think, is also Patterson. Right. And and so he's got a, a notebook and he writes uh, these poems and we see little snippets of them throughout the film, but not that much. We're teased by them. Mm. Uh, and then one day, this doesn't give anything away, his dog eats the book and oh. that's it. There's The poems are gone oh. and he's despondent. He doesn't know what to do. And then he's out for a walk. He sits in a park bench. A stranger sits next to him oh. and they talk and the stranger says, well, I also am a poet. I'm visiting from Japan and I've got a gift I'm going to give you. And he gives him a book and... Uh, Adam Driver thinks, oh, it's a book of poetry. I, I really, I'm still despondent over my, I don't want to look morning. at this. And it turns out it's a blank book. Uh-huh. And, the, and the writer says something that has stayed with me ever since and I think is such a potent message for, for anyone who wants to create something is every page is a possibility. That's right. You don't have to look at it That's as right. the enemy. You don't have to look at it as something you've got to finish or you've got to, it. That's every right. page can be whatever you want yeah. it to be. Yeah, yeah. I, I really believe in greeting the work with love, you know, mm-hmm. to approach it not as this thing that I'm going to fix and I'm going to edit and tinker and all of that. Yeah, yeah. That's part of the process. But to wake up in the morning and say, you know, good morning, novel. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, how are you doing today? Let's see where we left off. And to really go at it with an attitude of, uh, of affection yeah. um, rather than, oh, got to get this done. It's just not working. That kind of thing, right? It's it's all in the mind. I've heard about Patterson. Yeah. I haven't seen it. It sounds it's actually, fantastic. it sounds really, really yeah. good. It, and Patterson, I know I just kind of blew part of it for you, but yeah. it's still, it, it's, but it's a fantastic movie all right. the way through. Mm. Do you, it, it sounds like you edit as you go. You mm. say, you know, looking for the right word here, like mm. the, does this paragraph work? Mm. Um, I, I, I've written a bunch of books as well, and I Ten, tend to right? edit. I, I, I tend to edit as I go. I uh-huh. tend to to work and kind of edit as I go. It is just how I. It's my mm, process. Yeah, everyone's got a different one. Yeah. Is that part of your? No, that's not actually my process, right? So I'm like a spit the first draft out, like right. a really sort of messy writer, not sure what it's how it holds together, what it's right. about. But I feel like I need to get the whole arc, the entire story, out of my head, right? right? It's just too big to contain there. But I know writers like you, Richard, right? Who will sort of write a sentence and they go back and they they move on um, after they're satisfied with with what happens. It makes for slower writing, your process, but it means you get cleaner writing at the end of it. So that's the benefit. Yeah, and I still love working with an editor. Mm -hmm, Uh, mm -hmm. You know, the book that took the longest for me was about two and a half years, and it's a nonfiction book about a movie called The Devils. Mm. And uh, part of it was just tracking down everyone that was involved in the film, the making of the film from many years ago, all that stuff. It's nonfiction. Yeah. But I... I labored over that sentence by sentence, and then I gave it to an editor, and and it changed again. Uh, and, it, and it was a oh. fascinating process to see. You see, that's brutal. Yeah, it can be. <laughs> that is brutal, right? <laughs> to labor and then to then do it all over. So I, I write messy first drafts, and then I go through. This took 12 drafts, but usually it's about seven drafts or wow. so. And each draft has a purpose. So yeah. I'm only looking for structure in this draft or right. character in this draft or setting in this draft. Um, and by the time I get to the end of it, 
it, right? I, I feel like why am I tinkering with sentences if I'm not sure if that whole section is going to stay, right. Right? right? So some people have a more organized kind of mind, but I need to kind of explore on the page. I think yeah. because mine was fact-based mm. that I really needed, I felt just to keep this very complicated story in my head right. that I really needed to make sure that I was ready to move on to the next phase right. before I finished, you know, the right. phase before. So then you well, outline then. Are you an outliner? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. it makes a difference, It right? does make a difference, and, mm -hmm. and it helps uh, form the structure of the book. I'm speaking with Ian Williams. His new book is called Reproduction, and it's in bookstores right now. You can find it in bookstores. You can find it online, Amazon.ca, all the places that you buy fine books. Um, you mentioned characters, working with characters and mm -hmm. things. Douglas Copeland told me one time that it's almost as if his characters are sitting on his shoulders whispering <laughs> ideas in his head. And, and I, that ha it's an image that stayed with me. Is it that, like that for you? Well, devils or schizophrenia or something <laughs> else it could be another explanation for that. But no, not, not quite like that. So they emerge, right? I, I think about them just shifting the metaphor is all yeah. I'm doing here. But they emerge. So Army in this book like emerged as a kind of voice, right? Mm -hmm. Pretty lady, how you doing today, right? Like this voice that just kind of started emerging. Um, Edgar started off as a gesture of a man sort of gripping his wrist, and then the rest of his body took shape, and then his past took shape. And just a detail from Felicia's life uh, came to me first. And then they kind of reveal it's, it really requ requires a kind of patience, mm -hmm. right? You can push your way towards them, but there's this slow kind of... Um, Unveiling. It's almost like they're waiting to see if they can trust you. And I don't know. I, I know I'm speaking about it slightly preciously. And well, as but if isn't they're that kind like of any kind of friendship? Maybe, yeah. you know, you have to learn, you have to get to know the yeah. people. And sometimes it takes a little while. That's right. Yeah. But these, the your own figments of imagination here are seeing whether they trust you. Like what kind of fragmenting of the self does that say? <laughs> like your own self is waiting to say, can I trust you with this kind of gift that I'm about to unleash on you? And so it requires a kind of patience in combination with discipline, right, to get the to get a book done and to get characters written. And once is there a moment at which you go, I've gone as far as I can with this person, or hmm. is there always going to be more? Are you hmm. still thinking about the characters in this book? I still Even do. I'm sitting here with a finished <laughs> copy of it. In I, front of me. I still do. I still do. They really do take on a kind of independent life once the book comes out and stuff. But I was at uh, Ocean's Asian Supermarket, like in Brampton, over Christmas uh, with my mom. And she was off doing something, and I was like at the fish counter, and I was looking at the men's scale fish, and I was like, Hendrix would love this, right? <laughs> a character from it. And every once in a while, I've got like this. Uh, I was in the car yesterday with Scott Sellers, my publicist, and we were listening to 70s music driving back from Hamilton, and uh, like a song came on, and I was like, Oliver, this is Oliver's jam right here, wow. right? Like they, they come to me at, at, at various moments in life, and that shows that they're, they've got a kind of, you know when you think, oh, my friend would really like this shirt or this yep. dress? Uh, they really have preferences and likes and dislikes and personality separate from me, right? So that I feel just connected to them and not in control of them. We are midway through my interview with Giller Award-winning author Ian Williams. His novel Reproduction explores unconventional connections and brilliantly redefines family. We begin by talking about what his award-winning novel means to him. We were talking earlier, and uh, each of your other books has been a personal story for you, a connection. They're mm. not autobiographical, no. but they, they, they mean something to you uh, if you're willing to sort of poke around there and look mm. and find that meaning mm. as a reader. Uh, what does reproduction mean to you? Mm. Yeah, so it's not autobiographical, right? And I, I get this question quite a bit, and I take it as a great compliment that it feels real and it feels true. Uh, but 
So I'm in my late 30s right now. I'm 39. And the books that I've written previously really felt um, like period pieces for certain points in, <laughs> in my life, right? Um, so the last one, uh, Personal, is all about finding connection and finding love and uh, finding romance and just the difficulty of being uh, young and... Um, young and looking in this age, right, right. In, among all this digitalia that we have here. And so right now this feels like a book that steps just uh, beyond that and says, so what about our families, right? So after you found that person, what do families, look, how do families even work, right? <laughs> and how do you find people? Like how, yeah. how, does, how, how do people come together and decide to stay together? It's incredible, mm-hmm. right? Like this, the random forces that draw our parents together yeah. and that they decide and commit to bond to each other forever. I think that's nothing short of a miracle, right? Not everybody like grows up with the person that they're going to marry. You just mm-hmm. find somebody on the planet that you didn't know before and decide, yeah, I'm going to take this chance on this person forever. That's miraculous to me. That's miraculous. Yeah, Felicia and Edgar meet in a hospital room as their mothers are dying. Yeah, and they're strangers. Uh, yeah, their mothers strangers. are they, they are complete strangers. Their mothers are dying. And they have the kind of conversations that people have when you don't think you're going to see the person again. <laughs> and it's one of those sort of things that it was my take on it anyway. It's mm-hmm. that kind of conversation that you reveal a lot of stuff oh, sure. because we're in a it, – it, it's like you're on a plane that's about to crash. You're like, well, I may as well just tell <laughs> – I may as well say everything right now that's that right. I'm going to say. And then that's the right. plane doesn't crash. It's it exactly right <laughs> that's it exactly but we don't do this with just anybody it's mm-hmm. odd yeah. i think there's something uh, like below the surface right that connects us to certain strangers and not others in certain times in our lives we need people and other times we're content to kind of just listen to our headphones and stare ahead um but yeah there there there's occasionally the the person that your heart sort of leaps up within you and says you know you can talk to this person. Yeah. This person's okay. And then they respond. And then this bond kind of forms, right? So, yeah, it, it's rare when it happens. But when it happens, it's glorious. You're listening to my interview with reproduction author Ian Williams. Well, and it's and it feels, uh, you, you really get a sense of that from the book. And I know when it happens to me, and I know when it's happening. I'm like, there is no real reason why I should be talking to this complete stranger. Yeah. But it happens. Yeah. And, and I've often wondered about it. In the same way that you wonder, like, you know, why is... Uh, one person a bigger movie star than the other. It's charisma. It's something that you can't quite yeah. put your finger What's on. What's your theory on that? I'd be curious for yeah. that. But, there, but there's just something. There's yeah. just something that, it, that, right? that, yeah. Yeah, that, that is, I think, undescribable. And yeah. it happens, and, and away you go. Huh. Yeah, I'm not sure exactly. That's actually fascinating, right? Yeah. What makes a star and what separates, you know, this person out of eight billion? And, wh- and why do we want to watch them? And yeah. it, which connects to why do we want to spill our right. most For personal sure. stories to someone we've just met? Yeah, I mean, I think we have like a voyeuristic capacity in us as humans. But there's also something great about learning about that other person too, right? Mm-hmm. You get the slice of life with someone that you wouldn't ordinarily meet or yeah, speak yeah. with. I actually feel this way about my brother. Like, if my brother and I were not related, uh, we would never meet in our whole lives. He was super cool in school, and, you know, he's really easygoing and whatnot. And But it's been, like, one of the great blessings of my life that this coincidence of, like, I don't know, soul implantation happened, right. like, in our family. And my brother and I grew up beside each other, like, a year and a half apart, very, very different people. Huh. But to understand how he looks at the world and how he sees the world... Uh, I would never have that lens and to be locked into it, right? Yeah. Not to choose to say, you know, you choose when you call your friend or when you send a message or whatever, but to be locked into, say, sharing a bedroom with, with your brother right. and being saying, no, you got to clean up your side of the room, right? <laughs> like kind of it's like, why does it matter to you? So, yeah, I mean, those are the great things about um, 
about these random kinds of connections and then commitment sort of yeah. um, anchoring that. And you say that you wanted to push what a novel could do mm. with this. So over six years mm. and 12 drafts, yeah. how did you accomplish that? Mm. Yeah, you know, like film is super innovative. Music has all of these innovations, but mm -hmm. there's been too much talk, I think, of poetry and the novel being dead as forms. Right. They, are, they are far, far from dying. Uh, and and I, I agree. And, yeah. and I think uh, every time I've released a book, mm. For the, the last 15 years, I've always thought, oh, this is going to be the last book that you're going to be able to hold in your hand. <laughs> no. Everything else is going to be digital after that, and it's and it has never no. been true, and it's not going that no. way anytime soon. No, no. People like pretty books, and they want yeah. books, and there's something about the object that, that matters, too. I mean, the book is a piece of technology, yeah. right? Like, we just manipulate it, and we're so used to it. It's been around for a while that we don't really marvel at how special it is. So the kind of fiction and the kind of poetry that I want to write, like, celebrates print and celebrates textuality, right? Mm. Like these are books that are very hard to translate into film without losing something. The real pleasure is the experience of seeing that page and seeing how um, how thoughts move on the page, how it's laid out. Well, you talk about film and I'm speaking with Ian Williams, the author of Reproduction. It's in stores right now and you can find it on Amazon.ca and wherever you buy books. And we're going to run out of time in this segment, but you talk about how this would be difficult to translate into film. I thought of Rashomon while I was going through this because it, it felt like there were different points of view being presented kind of at the same time. And it's been done there and in many films <laughs> since then, so maybe. <laughs> I'm skeptical. Really? <laughs> I'm still skeptical about it. Yeah, there are parts of the book at the end where the book gets cancer and how do you have a tumor on a film, right? How yeah. do you have these growths growing out of yeah. out of a film? I don't know, like maybe overlay it. I, I just don't know. I don't have the vocabulary for, for film. Yeah, you need to find, uh, I don't know, Christopher Nolan or someone like that, <laughs> someone who's pushing the form That's great. Uh, in a do different that? way. I don't yeah. know who would be good for that, actually. Probably some like Canadian experimental filmmaker yeah. that, that I don't know, right? <laughs> Let's spend some time with Sir Ben Kingsley. He burst onto screens in 1982 playing the title role in Gandhi, a part that won him an Oscar for Best Actor and a shelf full of other acting awards. Other memorable roles followed in Schindler's List, Bugsy, Sexy Beast, and dozens upon dozens of other great films. He was made a knight by Queen Elizabeth II at Buckingham Palace in 2002, and it is here that we began our conversation. Sir Ben, we call you Sir Ben, and it always struck <laughs> me that that uh, calling you Sir Ben, Ben seems so casual with the Sir. Do you know what I mean? Like it seems like a, a funny thing. And I remember meeting Richard Attenborough one time, oh, your old friend Richard him. Attenborough, yeah. and he was a Sir and a Lord That's and all right. sorts That's of right. things, right? So I said to to a publicist, "What do I call him? I don't know uh, what I call him." Uh, Dicky. Well, <laughs> he came in the room, and I said, uh, "You know, Mr. Attenborough, I'm not sure how I should refer to you." And he said. Just call me Dicky. Exactly like that. Wonderful. The story. Oh, lovely man. Yeah. <laughs> lovely man. Later in the interview with Sir Ben Kingsley, I told him how people have often remarked to me on his work, how his roles are, quote, departures for him. I said, I thought that was the point, that he's an actor and that's what actors do. They try new things. This is what he said. Yes, yes, yes. You know, this is yes. what you do. You inhabit someone for six or eight weeks or however long it takes yeah. to make a movie. And, yeah. and and you hope people like it and you move along. But it was interesting to read. It the is a phrase I've also uh, come across um, in situations like this where I have to deal with somebody saying, so this is a departure for right. you. Right. I think, departure from what? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> 
I, I you know, from uh, Gandhi to the Wackness to the you know, Sexy Beast. <laughs> yeah, this is what I do. Yeah, yeah, yeah. funny. I love the I, I love the uh, variety of that. I love the idea that you seem so kind of um, joyful in the idea that you get to have this variety in your life. It is joyful. Yeah. It is joyful. Um, and um, I, th I don't know. As I say, I don't know whether they're all locked up, curled up inside yeah. me like a coiled spring or whether they're outside of me. But I do. It's thrilling to, to, to open a script and, and, and say to myself, there you are. Right, right. And yet, seconds before, I had no idea that I might be interested in playing that particular person. Right. And then suddenly, it's yeah, I'm allowed to uh, breathe life into an extraordinary situation, dilemma, passion, responsibility, uh, ethic. Suddenly, I'm allowed to, like um, Shutter Island, the the Doctor. Yeah. I was allowed to play who is one of the men I've played who is absolutely capable of unconditional love, mm -hmm. that he will do anything to save that patient and admit that he's failed. Right. And the tragedy of the lobotomy when he has to let go. But, you know, people actually saying, you were the bad guy in the movie, weren't you? I said, no, actually, I was the good guy. Oh, dear. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, you can't judge the character, though. I never do. Yeah, you wouldn't be no. able to, to say, well, yes, I'm going to play him as a villain, because I don't think villains really know that they're villains. Occasionally you might get a guy who goes, yeah, I'm not a very good guy. But I don't think people generally look at themselves and say, I'm a bad person or I'm a, something like well, that. Well, my, my character in, in Sexy Beast, um, very, very clear to me, almost from the first day of shooting and inhabiting that, that body, um, that he was an abused child, mm. definitely. An unhealed, unloved, unnurtured, abused child, and and that his scream from in, within was, "I love you. Why don't you love me?" Right. Uh, and uh, everything fell into place. Once I decided, I'm going to look after you because you're wounded, and it's my job to look after you. The audience might be horribly shocked by what I do and laugh sometimes, and then sometimes think, oh, oh, oh dear, I know that pattern. Right. He's hurt right. yeah, deeply. We went on to talk about what he hopes people will think about after they see him in a movie or a play. Well, it's a, it's a good question, and I don't want to dodge it. Mm -hmm. um, at the same time, um, we don't want to imprint anything onto right. what they may or may not see. I always hope, whenever I leave a great art gallery, my vision's altered. Right. Whenever I, I remember see, going to see the Impressionists, and I, I, oh, the light was different when I walked out. Everything was, looked different when I right. walked outside the gallery. Right. And I hope that just for those wonderful few seconds or even minutes that the world looks different when they leave the cinema. In this final clip, I told Sir Ben Kingsley that I had once watched him interact on a red carpet with a very excited fan. I asked him, how did that make you feel? The important thing for me is to tell the story. I am, I'm sure I'm a storyteller. Um, I'm sure that's the right place for my DNA to be. Right. And... Uh, 
if it means that she's heard the story and it touched her, then I'm delighted. Um, there, there, there's a, there's a story. Something happened to me, and it stayed with me forever. And it was a beautiful thing that happened. I had the privilege of playing Hamlet, which um, Michael Attenborough saw, and then told his dad, "Dad, if you ever get the money, I've seen the guy who should play Gandhi." So, I was playing Hamlet for the Royal Shakespeare Company, and I was walking. Um, he was always in my head. It's a very all-consuming role. I was walking across Snitterfield, where he himself used to walk. It's an open field uh, just outside of Stratford-upon-Avon, which you may know. You may know the town. Beautiful town. And a lovely young woman was at the opposite side of the field, seemed to be walking towards me. So I decided to tack to my right, right. to avoid her feeling that I was intruding on her space she tacked to her left in other words she mirrored me and then I went the other way and she mirrored me so she was determined to meet me in the middle of this field and face I can see, still see her face face to face she said I saw Hamlet last night how did you know about me that's interesting it's never left me yeah so I, something must have gone right in there right. through the sternum and said, I know. Yeah. Well, that is the connection. That's that, the connection. That's the connection that when it works, that the audience makes or the, the actors make with the audience. And that's why I think that young woman yesterday was beyond herself. Mm. It was so interesting to see. I love seeing it. I love that kind of enthusiasm. As someone who covers a film festival, as someone who is, you know, we've all seen this jaded thing. It's day eight and we've been seeing 500 movies. I love the enthusiasm. Mm, So do I. I love it very much. And if it means that through storytelling, something has been shifted, healed, touched in her, great. Those were some excerpts from an interview I did with Sir Ben Kingsley. Keep an eye open for his new movie, The Last Planet, coming to you in theaters sometime soon. Here's my in-depth interview with Arlene Dickinson. She's a Canadian businesswoman, investor, television personality, and author of Reinvention, Changing Your Life, Your Career, Your Future. She's a dragon investor on CBC Television's Dragon's Den. She owns one of Canada's largest independent marketing and communications firms and is someone who has shaped and reshaped her life. Arlene stopped by to discuss her new book and how to make meaningful changes in your life at any age. We began with me teasing her about being called a multimillionaire. Do you ever get used to that? Yeah. <laughs> Sometimes I go, oh, no, don't say that part, you know, because I always like, it it's, it's, could be so fleeting, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, and money is just not an objective. It, right. it's, a, it's a wonderful outcome when you work hard, but it's certainly not uh, what's driven me my whole life. Well, let's talk a little bit about your young life. So you were broke. You were staying on your father's couch. And instead of giving you money, he gave you advice. Right. Can you tell us what the advice was and what it meant to you? 
Yeah, you know, my dad could have easily given me a handout. Yeah. I always say, you know, he could have said, okay, I'll help you through the challenges you're going through. But what he did is he really convinced me that I had it within me to be in control of my own life and that it was nobody else's job to, you know, help me get where I needed to mm -hmm. get to. It was up to me to get off the couch and go and do something with my life. And he instilled, I guess, confidence, which was, you know, it's the best thing you can give somebody. Yeah, it's worth more than money. Yeah. Yeah. A lot more. <laughs> <laughs> now, what do you need to ask yourself? Your book is all about reinvention. Right. What do you need to ask yourself when you're thinking about changing your life? Well, you know, it's very funny. I think that um, there's a couple things you have to ask yourself. I, I call it a little bit, if you think about the three C's, I think, first of all, you have to think about, you know, what it is you have that is... Um, uh, I'm trying to think of the right word. If you introspection, if you think about introspection and how you can kind of understand what your currency is. So the first C being currency. Like what is it you can offer? What is it you have to offer as an individual? We all have something we can offer, right? So what's your currency? And then you have to think about what it is that you believe is your core purpose, your why. Right. Why do you get up every day? Why do you get out of bed? What is it that drives you? And then finally, you have to think about context. You know, what is the world that you're living in? And what is it, as you reinvent yourself, how can you be, you know, um, in that world and actually be able to succeed in that world? So you have to understand the context of the world. You can't reinvent yourself to something that's not going to be relevant. Right. So those three things. Well, you say in the book that to understand reinvention, you have to understand marketing. Yes. <laughs> well, the whole book is based on business yeah. principles, and yeah. it is really about, that's kind of got, what got me going. I mean, I needed to reinvent, and so I was able to take all of the business principles that we used in terms of branding and helping companies reinvent themselves and turn it into something that I could use personally. And, you know, there's business principles are not fluffy, empty sayings. Mm -hmm. They're pure principle on why you should do these things and what is the expected outcome and what's the process. So, Well, when we look at you, though, and I introduce you as multimillionaire Arlene Dickinson. We talk about that. We think, well, she doesn't need to reinvent herself. But it's an ongoing thing always, isn't it? Always. I mean, yeah. we all have a chance to. And generally, honest, generally, at people reinvent themselves because something's happened in their life. Mm -hmm. they, they go through a divorce, they get ill, they, they, they lose something, you know, and, and so there's something catastrophic that has happened. For me, it was the flood in Calgary mm -hmm. that actually drove me to have to reinvent myself. Mm -hmm. But I think you don't know what's going to happen next. And really, catastrophe or, or what feels catastrophic yeah. can happen any time in your life. And that's the moment that you really have to think hard about what you're going to do next. Um, you can't just barrel through. You have to think about it. Yeah, for me, it was illness that, yes. that changed my perspective on everything. And the reinvention wasn't obvious except in, up here. Isn't I think about things completely differently than I did before I was ill. So what was it? It's just I had that, cancer. Yeah. And, and, and it, I, I realized that uh, everything can change like that, yes. which I had never. I'd felt like 10 foot tall and bulletproof right. my entire life right. and and it made me really think about the stuff that was important and the things that I worried about my career how much money was in my bank account all this time it was like you know what that's not I mean it's important but it's not the most important thing. No. Yeah. And, and it is, it's that realization and then you kind of have this moment in your life when when those things happen you mm -hmm. kind of go what am I going to do? Yeah. And what, what, what does matter to me? And that is that back to that whole thing about what's my currency? What do I have mm -hmm. to offer in the world? You know, what's my core purpose? What's the context I'm living in? And uh, illness is a, a big, it's a a big wake thing. Up. It's a wake up. You say in the book that a dream or a goal is not enough. And I, I, I get that. But what is it then that you think you need 
other than confidence. We've covered that to be successful. Well, listen, I think introspection, as mm -hmm. I said earlier, is everything because you're in a ditch, right? I mean, your life is in a ditch. Yep. Generally, when you want to reinvent yourself, there's something that's put yeah. you kind of on, you know, you're wondering how you're going to move forward. And so I think introspection, and it's counterintuitive. You have to look back in order to move forward. You have mm -hmm. to think about what your past was and what got you there so that you know what to do next. So I'd say uh, introspection, but then also accountability. You have to take accountability for what got you here in the first place and not blame everybody else. You have to take accountability. You're listening to my interview with Reinvention, Changing Your Life, Your Career, Your Future author, Arlene Dickinson. And that's a message that I see you on the Dragon's Den uh, giving to the people that come in to pitch you. Yeah. You know, you look for very specific things. I watch the show and I'll be like, oh, she's going to invest in this. She's, she's going <laughs> can to you tell this. I have tells? I, I, kind oh. of, I can kind of tell. <laughs> oh, I didn't I, know that. But, but part of it, I think, is the, it's, it's the, the kind of products that are, that are coming yes. at you. And I can generally speaking tell. There's surprises still, yeah. but I can generally speaking tell. But accountability is something that um, you talk about on the show uh, in terms of the, the people that are pitching to you and what the product is and what it means to the world. Right. I mean, at the end of the day, you know, nobody, it is our lives. We, mm -hmm. you know, we were talking about this a, a few minutes ago in the green room about how, you know, it doesn't have to be for everyone. The things you do don't need to matter to everyone. Mm -hmm. They just need to matter to somebody. Right. And that somebody is you. Yeah. You know, like, why are you doing this really matters. And people don't think about that. They just they live their lives for somebody else. And I think in a world, honestly, where we're curating our stories all the time, mm -hmm. right, on Facebook and on social media, and we get stymied by our stories as a result because people expect us to be a certain thing, it's hard to change. You get curated into a corner. Right, yeah. right. Yeah. And, you know, do you ever feel that way? I mean, we, you are a very public person. We, you are at events. You are, you know, on the cover. There's a great photograph of you on the cover of the yeah. book. We see you on television uh, constantly. You're out in the world. Do you feel that there's an Arlene Dickinson that we need, that you have to project? Or um, am I talking to the, the, the Arlene Dickinson that I would be if we just went out and had a drink? You're talking to the same yeah. person. I, I think one thing I have learned, I mean, first of all, TV came to me very late in my mm -hmm. life. So I think I had to really be good with who I was before I ended up being a public figure. Yeah. And I have learned, maybe because I'm older, but I've learned that the more honest and transparent and vulnerable you are, the more people will understand and relate to who you are. So trying to be something that isn't who I am, it's exhausting. I, I couldn't do it. So, well, you know. I, I would say, I would go even go as far as to say that you have reinvented yourself from the beginning of that series, which was maybe 13 or 14 years yeah. ago, I think, yeah. uh, until today. I think if you go back and look at the first season uh, of shows, it's, you're different in them. And you're learning the ropes, probably. Yeah. But uh, maybe did something happen over that time, do you think? I, I Listen, the first time I sat down in the chair on Dragon's Den, I was scared to death. Mm -hmm. I, I honestly felt overwhelmed by it. I didn't really know how I was going to find my place on that mm -hmm. panel. And, you know, learning how to just speak your own truth and learning to just hold your own place made a big difference for me. So I probably have changed. I mean, I've gotten older and I've gotten more experience and hopefully that experience has helped me. And, uh, yeah, I'm, I, my hair's different. <laughs> my skin might be a little... I mean, I might have a few more wrinkles. I don't know. I'm just saying. Yeah. I do, since yeah. I started this. <laughs> you, you start. um, do you look, when people are pitching you, do you look at the idea or the people pitching, or is it just some nuance in the middle there? 
It is mostly the people pitching, yeah. and then it's the idea. I mean, at the end of the day, there's a lot of you know a lot of great things out there: great wines, great, mm -hmm. great glasses, great napkins, great whatever you want to um, invent. But it's rare that something is really so unique that you go, oh, I've never ever right. seen that before. Right. Um, so it's always a different version of the same thing, or a newer version, or an improved version. Mm -hmm. And then you have to go, but can this person? Is this person got the drive and the determination and the dedication to make this happen? And that's what I really care about. Well, I see sometimes the the five of you be quite hard on people that come through. No, <laughs> sometimes. Uh, but but sometimes. But <laughs> I, I but I never really feel like it is mean spirited. I mean, occasionally, maybe if the if the pitch has really not gone well, but it almost always feels to me like you're pushing that person, saying, "Nope, not good enough this time. You have to rethink what you're doing." Yeah, it's a it's a fine line. I mean, it's who am I to tell somebody that their dream isn't good enough? Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, all I can do is decide whether I want to invest in that dream. Right. So I don't. You never want to crush people, and I really try hard not to. There's no win in that. I mean, yeah. we're not there. We're not the judgment den. We're the dragons. <laughs> so. Do people pitch you everywhere you go? Honestly, everywhere. everywhere. You can't name a place. The bathroom, <laughs> the airplane, oh, no. the, the, the elevators, the like everywhere. And and it's it's actually really you know people are so nice. I mean, Canadians in particular are super kind and super nice to me. So it's it's fine. You devote a lot of time to working with young people yes. uh, and helping them. What's your message to them? You know, dream, dream. I, this it may seem obvious, but dreaming big mm -hmm. is something I wish I had done sooner in life. If I had anything, I regulated myself. Mm -hmm. I said, "Who do I think I am yep. to dream that big and to think I can do those things?" And so I would say, you know. Believe in, in, in yourself. You're never going to know all the answers. You're going to make some mistakes along the way. You may not choose the right path, but don't stop thinking big. Don't stop you know, believing in yourself and what you're capable of. Well, that was Arlene Dickinson, star of Dragon's Den, business person and author of Reinvention, Changing Your Life, Your Career, Your Future. Find her book wherever fine books are sold. My thanks to all my guests, Arlene Dickinson, Ian Williams, and Sir Ben Kingsley. Most of all, though, my thanks to you for tuning in. I'm Richard Krause. Hope you're feeling happy and safe, and we'll talk again soon.